Well, I, I remember New Year's two years ago. Uh, my family and I had recently arrived here in Kenilworth from Cape Town. We'd just moved into our home uh, a couple of weeks before the end of the year. And there were still lots of things to settle, many unknowns. Um, but mainly, there was a sense of excitement. Um, a new adventure lay ahead for us. One chapter of our story had closed, and the next was beginning. And that sense of adventure, of new beginnings, is something we all know well, isn't it? Uh, some of you will remember those choose-your-own-adventure stories. Um, you remember the ones where, at the end of the chapter, you get to choose... Uh, are you going to get on the plane to go to Brazil to follow the clue that leads you a thousand miles up the Amazon? Or do you take the train to Paris to re recover the stolen briefcase? Now, of course, we don't know in advance whether Brazil or Paris will turn out to have been the right choice. But at the moment we make the decision, we make it because we think it will turn out to be the right one. And the start of a new year is often like that. There's a sense of adventure, a sense of possibility. The start of the new year is also usually a time when we make plans. We resolve to get more exercise, to eat more healthy food, to eat less unhealthy food, to do our best in exams, to go for a promotion at work, to make the team, to get into the university of our choice, to paint the spare room, to learn the violin. And so we spend money. We buy new running shoes and we buy a violin. And much to our neighbor's relief, three weeks later the violin is up for sale on eBay. But at the time we buy it, we really do mean to become a concert violinist. With the benefit of some life experience, we learn that the, that the adventures we choose don't always work out the way we think they will. And the resolutions we make are often more along the lines of wishful thinking than they are really resolutions. Even so, the closing of one year and the start of the next usually does carry that sense of adventure, of possibility, of new beginnings. We usually feel energized and we look forward to the year ahead with excitement. Usually. But this new year is different, isn't it? There's a sense in which we feel unable to close the chapter that was 2020 because the adventures we chose for 2020 didn't happen. There's a sense in which we feel unable to choose our adventures for the, years ahead, for the year ahead because, well, there are just so many restrictions on our ability to choose and because there's so much uncertainty. What we do feel certain of this new year is that the journey forward looks hard and that there are some important unknowns on the road ahead. We have many questions. Will I, st will I still have my job by next new year? Will I be able to find the new job that I need now? Will I be able to write exams this June? Will I be able to graduate this year? Will I be able to see my friends at all? Will I be able to see my father, my mother, my children, my granddad, my granny, my brother, my sister? This is not a normal new year. This is not a choose your own adventure kind of year. 
But there are still some things that you must resolve. Not a new diet or an exercise plan. Not to learn the violin. You must resolve to fix your mind and your heart on some things that are unshakably and everlastingly true. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 3, says, You, that's God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And that's what you and I need to resolve today. To stay our minds on God. To fix our minds on Him. To take hold of some truths about God until those truths take hold of us. And if we will do that, if we will resolve to do it, and then do it, then the Lord God will keep us in perfect peace this year. No matter what the journey brings. And this chapter, this passage in, um, in Isaiah 43, is the perfect passage to give us five rock-solid truths about God to stay our minds on. You see, what's happening here is that the people of God are in exile in Babylon. It's somewhere between about the year 550 and 580 BC. And the people of Israel, specifically those from the southern part of the kingdom near Jerusalem, have been taken captive. King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and deported most of the leading citizens to Babylon. And that's where they are when Isaiah speaks these words from the Lord to them. They're in Babylon, in exile. Now what's going on in the chapters around here is that the Lord is reassuring His people that He will take them home, back to the promised land. He will deliver them from Babylon. He will raise up another empire, the Persians under Cyrus who will defeat Babylon and release the captives to return to their homelands. So this passage is part of a message of good news. But consider this. The people of, Babylon, of Israel, apologies, the people of Israel, uh, depending on which wave of Nebuchadnezzar's deportation program they'd been part of, had spent between about 50 and 70 years in Babylon. Most of those who'd once lived in Israel had probably died in Babylon. Most of those going back to the land of Israel weren't really going back. They were going there for the first time. It would have been their parents and their grandparents that remembered Israel as home. For most of those about to make the journey, they would have been born in Babylon. Babylon was the only home they knew. Now, of course, they knew all the stories, all the history of their people. They knew Israel was where they were supposed to be. But to them, Israel was an unknown place. They'd been born in Babylon, grown up in Babylon, been to school in Babylon, played football at Babylon Rovers and cricket at the Babylon Oval. They would have understood because they'd been taught that Israel was their homeland. But to them, it was an unknown land. And... It was about an 800-mile journey to get there. Now consider packing up your household into what you can carry on your back, maybe with the help of a donkey or a camel or two, and walking with your family from here to Milan. That's the journey. Except it was also through the harsh desert wilderness of Central Arabia 
They would have been vulnerable not only to sunstroke, thirst and exhaustion, but to attack by robbers and bandits. The journey ahead was a long and a dangerous and a frightening one. And what could they expect on arrival in Israel? Not ease and comfort and plenty. No. What waited for them on arrival was the grueling work of rebuilding their lives from the ruins of a land devastated by 200 years of Assyrian and Babylonian conquest. These people had suffered in exile, and what lay ahead of them would be hard. It was a long season of struggle. And though there was good news, they were still in it. They were still in a season of struggle. There are times in the Lord's dealings with His people that a hard season comes to an end, and the journey ahead looks just as hard. And it is all 100% within the Lord's providence. There will be times in the Lord's dealings with you, Christian, His good and kind dealings with you, that it will feel like you're going from being in exile in a foreign land to just trying to survive a desert crossing with meager provisions to the back-breaking labor of trying to build a life. And all of it will be 100% within the Lord's good will for you. There will be times when you don't get to choose your own adventure. Your path will be chosen for you by circumstances beyond your control. But what you must choose, what you must resolve, is to fix your mind on some rock-solid truths about God. And from this passage in uh, chapter 43 of Isaiah, I'm going to give you five. Five rock-solid truths about God. Five eternally true never-changing realities that you need to stay your mind on for the year ahead. Number one, the Lord your God is sovereign. Number two, the Lord your God is for you. Number three, the Lord your God will see you home. Number four, the Lord your God will care for you on the way home. Number five, the Lord your God loves you. Number one, the Lord your God is sovereign. We'll look in your Bibles at chapter 43. I'm going to read uh, verses 14 and 15. And I want you to count the number of times that God names himself. I'll read, you count. So here goes from verse 14. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel... For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. Right, well, uh, did you count seven times? Seven times the Lord names Himself. In verse 14, He is the Lord, that's one, your Redeemer, that's two, the Holy One of Israel, that's three. And then in verse 15, the Lord, that's number four. Your Holy One, five. Israel's Creator, six. Your King, seven. Seven times God names Himself. Now we know that in the Bible often the number seven represents fullness, completion, perfection. So what is God saying to us? 
Why does he speak these two verses just this way? Well, in the second half of verse 14, you'll see God says that he is about to overthrow Babylon. That's what's going on there. I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians. Later at the end of chapter 44, beginning of chapter 45, God explains that he will use uh, the rising Persian Empire under Cyrus to do this. But who does what isn't the point. The point is that God's rule over the world and over its affairs is completely, absolutely perfect and total. He is the Lord, your Redeemer. He is the Holy One of Israel. The Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. He is seven times the sovereign ruler over all. He raises up empires and emperors to do His bidding. And He puts them down once they've served His purposes. He is King without rival. He is sovereign over the rising and falling of empires and nations. He is sovereign over the economy. He is sovereign over Brexit. He is sovereign over coronavirus and every variant of it. He is sovereign over the opening and closing of schools. He is sovereign over the sitting of exams. He is sovereign over the balance sheet and the income statement of your company. He is sovereign over your personal bank account. He is sovereign over your employment and over your unemployment. He is sovereign over every single circumstance of your life. The Lord who is able to direct empires and history like puppets on a string is 100% in control of every circumstance of your life. The Lord your God is absolutely, totally, completely, perfectly sovereign. Number two, the Lord your God is for you. Again, look at the words in the Bible. Make sure you see this with your own eyes. Middle of verse 14. For your sake. For your sake. For whose sake? For whose sake does the seven times sovereign Lord exercise his absolute sovereignty? Yours. Look at the end of verse 20. My people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself. In Isaiah's day, that was Israel. But God's choosing of Israel was always a picture of his choosing of individual people. Those who would believe in Christ for salvation. God's forming of Israel through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and the Exodus was always a picture of God's forming of a people for himself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. In other words, the sovereign Lord your God, who raises empires and discards them, who rules the affairs of the world perfectly, does so, verse 14, for your sake. For the sake of all those who are in Christ. What greater comfort could you have? Would you rather be in control? The sovereign Lord rules all for your sake. The Lord your God is sovereign. The Lord your God is for you. 
Number three, the Lord your God will see you home. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. This is what the Lord says, he begins. And then he describes himself as the God of the Exodus, the God who rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. It was about 900 years before this. He is the Lord who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses, the army and the reinforcements, and destroyed them. But what was the Exodus for? It was to take Israel to their promised land, the land was, that was to be their home. Now they're in exile in Babylon, but once again, God is taking them home. The Lord will never leave his people in captivity or exile. He will see them home. But where is home? Well, home, ultimately for us, is where Jesus is. Home is with him. The world, this world with all its temporary homes, will soon pass away. But if you are in Christ, you will soon enter the new creation, the new world that Jesus will make, and live there with Him and with all others who have trusted in Him forever. And think of this, Christian. Do you remember how at the time of the Exodus and uh, the, the, the journey through the desert, how the Lord manifested His presence to His people um, he led the way, he protected, he protected them by a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Exodus chapter 13 verse 22 says, Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. God was seeing his people home. He was with them. He was present with them night and day on their way. Soon, the Lord Jesus himself will come and lead his people home. The Lord your God is sovereign. The Lord your God is for you. The Lord your God will see you home. Number four, the Lord your God will care for you on the way home. Verse 19, I am making a way in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland, your translation might say rivers in the desert. Verse 20. Such an abundance of water that you won't even need to chase the wild animals away from it. There will be more than enough for all who are thirsty. Because I provide or I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people. I provide I give water in the wasteland, says the Lord. Christian, let me ask you, what is the nature of the Lord's giving? When the Lord gives, how does He give? Does He give from obligation? Does He give only the minimum required? Does He give only when asked and with the right words, in the right tone of voice at the right moment? Let me read you a familiar verse and then you decide how the Lord gives. God so loved the world that He gave 
His one and only Son. God so loved that He gave the most precious thing He could ever give. The greatest cost. That's the nature of the Lord's giving. Christian, for the journey ahead of you this year, the Lord says to you, I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, streams in the wasteland. I will give drink to my people. There is no need you have this year for which the Lord will not provide. Do you need a million pounds? If the Lord knows that you need a million pounds to accomplish what He's called, for, called you to do, you can be sure of it. He will give it to you. Do you need a new job? Do you need a true friend? Every need you have, the Lord will provide. He gives. And do you want to hear some more really good news? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 verse 8, Your Father in heaven knows what you need. He knows what you need. And do you know what He says to your need? I give. I give. Water in the wilderness. Rivers in the desert. Streams in the waste. I give drink to my people. The Lord your God is sovereign. The Lord your God is for you. The Lord your God will see you home. The Lord your God will care for you on the way home. Number five. The Lord your God loves you. Do you know what moves me most about this passage of Scripture? Well, I wonder, I wonder first what touches your heart most. Which of these truths do you most need to fix your mind and your heart on? What takes hold of my heart is this. Simply that this passage is here. What moves me most is that God tells them and tells us all of this. You see, God knew what he was going to do. He knew he was about to raise up Cyrus the Persian and bring an end to the Babylonian Empire. He knew that he would use Cyrus to release the captives and allow them to return to their historical homelands. God knew all of these things. He knew his own plans and purposes. He knew that he was perfectly able to execute his plans. God knew that he was the seven-time sovereign the king without rival. He could simply have done what he intended to do. But Psalm 103 that Keith read some of for us earlier. In fact, turn to Psalm 103. And I'll read for you verses 13 and 14. There are some parts... Sometimes that you need to see Scripture with your own eyes, not just hear it. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. 
He remembers that we are dust. The Lord knows we are weak. He knows we are needy. He knows as Israel faced the journey home, though that was good news, he knew they would have looked ahead to that journey with some fear. 800 miles through the desert to a land they didn't know. They would have got the big picture. They'd been well taught by their parents and their grandparents. This is how you fit into God's providence. This is the promised land. They would have known their national history and the story. But to them, individually, personally, experientially, this was a journey into the unknown. And it would be a hard one. And they knew it. And God knew that they would have had all these uncertainties, all these fears, all these insecurities about what lay ahead. And so, knowing their weakness, knowing their need for encouragement, knowing that their hearts needed to be lifted up, they didn't just need the deed accomplished, overthrow the Babylonians and you're free to go home. More than just the deed accomplished, their hearts needed to be attended to. They needed his compassion. They needed his words. They needed reassurance of his love, of his presence with them. They needed him to tell them in advance, I'm going to look after you. It's all going to be okay. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord God condescends to his people to say, Don't worry. I am with you. It's all going to be okay. I've got you. I know you look at this journey ahead with fear, with uncertainty, with more questions than you have answers. I know you're tired. I know you're weary. But I've got you. I've got you. Just the fact that God says this. The Lord your God loves you, Christian. The Lord your God loves you. He is sovereign over all. Absolutely, totally. The seven times sovereign. He is king without rival. He is for you. He will see you home. He will care for you on the way home. He loves you. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Now, Christian, you must resolve to stay your mind on these truths. Don't let the word of God float in one ear and out the other. Don't let the busyness of life snatch them away from you. Stay your mind. Stay your mind every day. No matter what the journey ahead holds, the Lord your God will keep you in perfect peace this year. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Our most gracious God and Father, 
What an awesome God you are. You are the Father of all compassion. We could never deserve your care, your love. We could never deserve what you do for us, let alone your tender-hearted care for us. Your soft, fatherly, wrapping us in your embrace and telling us it's going to be okay. Who could ever dream up a God like you? A God who cares so absolutely for our circumstances, for our tomorrows, even for our hearts. What a wonderful God you are. What a wonderful Father. Father, would you add mercy to mercy and draw our hearts every day this year to you in your word. Help us to stay our minds, to fix our hearts on you. Father, if we have been prone to go days or weeks or extended times because of busyness or whatever without turning to you father would you in your mercy draw our hearts to you daily this year help us father to stay our minds on you be glorified in our trust in you our father Amen.